Hello, this is Alex Stevenson bringing you the first of three bonus episodes following episode 34, which of course looked at the second quarter of 1800. And of our three segments in that episode, the third one was an interview between Liam Gauchi, who is curator of the Malta Maritime Museum and Dr Sakis Gekas. Um, of York University in Toronto. They were talking about the establishment of the Septinsular Republic, this very unusual republic set up by Russia and the Ottomans, basically getting together. It's all very, very strange, two, two monarchies getting together there. But that was such an important moment that then led... Well, it was part of this process of, of sudden change that then was starting to lead towards what would happen for Greece in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. So here is a little bit more from Liam and Sakis, quite a bit more actually. They're going to spend a bit more time really looking ahead here at what happened next. So this will be a useful reference point um, as we progress through the period. Um, Hope you enjoy their conversation. So, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Sakis Gekas. Um, uh, we are going to be talking um, uh, and discussing the Greek sphere of influence uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but before that, I would like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more of who do you represent. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for having me. I'm the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University. Uh, and uh, my uh, research interests uh, are on uh, the history of uh, the Onion Islands, especially in the 19th century during the period of British rule, uh, the history of the Greek Revolution, and more recently, the, uh, the history of Greeks in Canada. Well, I think that gives you, an, a, let's say, the right CV to be talking about this subject. And I would like to sit back and listen to, to what you have to say. But we're starting off with the early Napoleonic Wars, what was happening in that sphere of, uh, in the Levant when, when it comes to, to Greece during that period, as, as a prelude to what we are about to be talking about? Well, the Levant from the um, uh, Adriatic Sea to all the way to the Eastern Mediterranean is, of course, a battlefield. Uh, but I think the way uh, we've been trying to see it in uh, Greek historiography more recently, and in fact, with the o- o- occasion of the bicentennial of the Greek Revolution is to re-examine the place of Greeks uh, as imperial subjects. So not, let's say, waiting until 1821, until the nation sort of is awakened or is reborn or whatever sort of an old uh, historiography and ideology dictated, but to see how do people who live in empires, like, you know, all uh, people do at the time, under which empires, of course, uh, they begin to form ideas uh, that talk about political emancipation. And they do this in, in very different ways. And the Onion Islands are one of the most fertile grounds where this happens, precisely because they have a, a much more concentrated geographically, uh, but also culturally, uh, identity that is uh, very close to what we call uh, standardly, let's say conventionally, the West. 
so other uh, Ionians from the islands of Corfu, uh, Kefalonia, uh, Zykynthos to a certain extent, they're very well educated, uh, they go and serve in uh, foreign armies as, uh, and governments. Uh, so some of them bring back uh, to the Ionian islands or send their uh, ideas and uh, when the time comes, when the islands become actual uh, place of interest, for the imperial armies, whether the uh, Republican French in 1797-1799 or the Russian Ottoman uh, armies uh, and navies uh, in 1799 until 1807, or again the imperial French in 1807 until 1814, uh, and the British, of course, arrive in 1809-1810. This is where uh, the islands uh, are beginning to uh, redefine themselves and their uh, sovereignty. So what's happened, that's one of, one of the many interesting things, is that they move from uh, being an Ionian nation, you know, that's a sort of the standard uh, pre-modern sense of the nation, to a Greek one. And partly the reason for that is because uh, those who arrive, uh, we beat the French or the Russians or the British later on, actually tell them so, that, you know, you are uh, those who continue the uh, ancient Greek nation. And of course that, you know, is music to their ears. You know, that's, uh, that's how they understand it and that's how they uh, shape their mentality. But then again, it is a polity that is formed, the Septuagint Republic that we talked about in 1800, 1807, or the uh, protectorate, 1814-15, uh, after the Treaty of Paris until uh, 1864, when the islands joined Greece, uh, that is not born out of the revolution. You know, this is not a state that is created out of revolution. This is another Greek state. Uh, it is a Greek, but it is uh, under protection, both under Russian Ottoman rule in 1800-1807, then during British, uh, French uh, imperial uh, occupation, and then under the British, under sort of a British form of protection. So that is what's creating this interesting and uh, also um, interesting comparative uh, conditions compared to other places in the Mediterranean. It, it, is, it is simply fascinating when, when, when you start to see how, how these, uh, at the end of the day, um, islands, in the Mediterranean, were were so influential uh, and and so part of the greater narrative um, of, of the Napoleonic Wars, and and when we were talking about the Septinsular um, uh, Republic, we we were discussing um, how how the locals were uh, trying to impose their their way of life onto onto these 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 bigger um, uh, empires, and their influence is is is. Is clearly seen, and I, I wanted to, to to go now beyond that republic and what came after that, um, so so that we can start seeing um, all the way through um, the, the the Napoleonic Wars of what was happening, what happened when when the Septuagint Republic ended, um, uh, finished, so to speak. Well, there is the constitutional change of 1803, which is quite important uh, because it uh, created a much more um, uh, oligarchic situation, uh, not unlike the one that existed under Venetian rule, but now it's under different, it's, it's sanctioned uh, differently, let's say. Uh, the period of, um, of, of French rule in 1807-1809 for just a few islands is short for the Southern Islands. So for the islands of Zande, Kefalonia, Ithaki, uh, Kithira, they're taken over uh, quickly by the British because they, the British uh, decide that this is a very important strategically area 
Uh, and of course, the person we haven't talked, uh, the elephant in the region, if you like, not in the room, is Ali Pasha. You know, it's a sort of imperial governor, uh, the Albanian Ottoman uh, governor of uh, Epirus. This is the mainland, let's say, stretching from Albania all the way south near the Peloponnese. You know, so this is an extended reach. You know, he has his own money, uh, you know, tax collecting mechanism. He has his own armies, you know, mercenaries based, of course. Uh, and he begins to negotiate directly with the French, with the British. Uh, then, therefore, the, uh, the Ottomans have a, a sort of rogue representative there, if you like. So someone who does, who does his own, uh, the Muslim Bonaparte, interestingly, as he's been called by a contemporary at the time. So uh, all this is in relation to the Ottoman Empire, uh, because it is uh, the, uh, the ally that is an uncomfortable one especially for uh, the Russians until 1807, and then the British later on. So uh, this is uh, where the Onion Islands uh, acquire a significance. But then it's telling, too, that at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, the British are not dying, let's say, to occupy the islands and turn them into a colony. So they present a problem, an interesting problem. You know, what is going to happen to with their uh, government? And uh, I think that's where the locals play a role uh, as well, because they have formed these uh, political groups and ideas that they, they uh, trust, uh, they generate trust to, uh, especially the British, that they can, uh, these are, these are, this is a population that they can govern. Uh, now, they bring this um, uh, very eccentric, uh, to say the least, governor, Thomas Metland. Thomas Metland. Thomas Maitland, who you probably know very well, yes. uh, he's the governor of uh, the, the Mediterranean fleet, he's a commander, and it's interesting that, that in the minds of the British command of the 1810s, let's say, uh, the Met Malta and Corfu at least, but also the rest of the Onion Islands, are seen strategically as one. Uh, this is a, a field of... Uh, uh, of uh, strategic importance. Uh, of course, this is uh, true uh, until uh, the islands uh, begin to be are uh, next to a hot zone, a war zone of the Greek Revolution in 1821. But this is a different chapter. It, it is a totally different chapter, but but very interesting. And I, I think we cannot have the chapter of 1821 without having this chapter that we are talking about. That's right. Thomas Maitland, in, 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 in our history books at school, um, our children still call him King Tom. Um, uh, he, he, he was not very popular. Um, how, obviously, he was a military governor um, uh, with an, uh, an, army, an army background. Um, and... and in Malta, and you can tell me a lot more about, about the Ionian Islands, we always wanted to have a seagoing governor, a sea captain, because we considered the island as a ship and it should be run like, like a ship, not like, not like the army. And that brings me to another question and, and uh, about this connection. Why, why do you think the British were so interested in, in, in keeping this, 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 this this line of not even defense, I would call it this line of of navigational um, uh, navigational entrepôts, um, so to speak. Um, you mentioned in in our interview sultanas um, and how important the, the trade of sultanas and how important that was um, to the London merchants. 
um, uh, bringing all that, that that the Levant company has always been that important. And th- at the same time in Malta, it was that Antropo and that quarantine harbor of, of how important um, it was. I think my question is a bit too long, but I will end it all up with when I was in Kitira in summer, I, I've at the quarantine harbor, I find a monument to, to Sir Thomas Maitland, um, who was the same guy who rid Malta of the plague in 1813. Well, I'll start from this is wonderful. Uh, it's, a, it's a long question, but it's a multi-thematic one. Uh, I'll start from the plague. Uh, he eradicated the plague in Malta in uh, 1813, and he did that again in Corfu in 1816, precisely because of his previous experience from Malta. And he has uh, also the same military doctor, uh, James Tully. So he's uh, using the experience he gets from Malta to apply it to a similar situation, but again with differences, uh, in Corfu with uh, great success because he limited, he restricted the spread of the disease uh, outside of the town, outside Corfu town in the countryside. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned the monument in uh, Kithra because there are, these are some of the few ones that are left. Uh, Metland is not popular in Greece uh, either. I mean, he's not very well known outside, you know, the so those who study Ionian history or he's not taught at schools, let's say, <laughs> put it differently, uh, which is not surprising. Uh, but he's, uh, he's very important and we're gradually moving away with the work of uh, Angelisa Rokostas, uh, a very good recent dissertation. We're moving away from, let's say, the idea that, you know, of the ruthless dictator, sort of the brute uh, King Tom and all that. It seems that, you know, he, he was uh, probably more sophisticated, even in his sort of, you know, uh, direct and uh, sometimes even brute uh, manners. But he is trying to bring in judicial reforms, for instance. You know, judicial reforms is not something that a sort of, you know, uh, uh, quite often uh, drunk military governor would uh, be interested in. Uh, and he ruled for um, eight uh, years in uh, between 1814 and 15 until 1823. And he leaves it to Adam, the, his uh, second in command while he was high commissioner. It's interesting. He's called high commissioner in the Onion Islands. He's not a governor because it's not a colony. It's a, it's a protectorate, so it needs to have a high commissioner. And he's technically not even the head of state. But of course, nothing happens uh, in the island's uh, politics and overall in the economy without his approval. So I think Metland presents this interesting transition from what uh, Bailey used to call, you know, the um, enlightened despots, let's say, of the, the Mediterranean uh, uh, despots uh, to uh, an interesting and very uh, illustrious career trajectory from uh, Trinidad to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, of course, to Malta, to Corfu. And uh, he's, uh, he's very uh, keen to maintain the British hold over the islands internally. So he makes sure that in this constitutional charter that the Onion Islands get in 1817, the High Commissioner has the first and the last word. So there is a Senate, there's elections of, with a tiny franchise, of course, like 2% of the population, but nothing happens until he and his secretary agree to it. So the hold he, he, he wants to have on the islands internally and externally 
has needs to be understood in the context of British imperial interest in the Mediterranean as a whole. And it's not just the sultanas. You know, I think it's by then there's an understanding that uh, you know British industrial goods are going to be uh, sold more and more in the. If you see the exports and imports, especially um, of the Ionian Islands that go through the ports, uh, Corfu in 1825 is declared a free port. Corfu is a free port in 1825, which means that and Corfu has no raisins. <laughs> so clearly there's a political economy here of the island and it's uh, as an entrepot, as, as a port that will be transit and its goods coming from Britain or arriving to Corfu from further east, they will be, uh, they will there as a as a transit for you know that will advance the island's uh, growth and of course the island's economy will pay for its expenses because that's a principle that the british follow uh, so it's an interesting transition i think and metland is at the helm of it it's it, it's fascinating uh, and when i hear you speak here i see the similarities but also um paradoxes um in between also malta and 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 the ionian island especially with king tom and and i keep calling him that because because it's it's inbred in, in, in our in our in our historiography and it's totally wrong uh, because he was someone who also um tried to update our admiralty court which had been going uh, malta had an admiralty admiralty court since 1605 and he updated it and he had that little bit of royal navy splendor he also updated the admiral's mace uh, which was a very rococo um, silver mace and turned it into a very neoclassical um, neoclassical uh, silver mace for the admiralty he also got in malta he got into loggerheads with the famous cochrane uh, captain captain cochrane um, who um, uh, let's say was a little bit of a rogue when it came when it came to shipping and especially the the admiralty and that brings me to my last question of how important were the islands when it came to the dominance especially military dominance of the royal navy in the mediterranean and its protection of british shipping well i think it's uh, immensely important and that's uh, something uh, to uh, go back to uh, but before i do that i'd like to stress another connection between malta and corfu Uh, as you probably know, uh, Metland brought not only the stones from Malta, but actually the stone masons to build uh, his uh, palace. You know, the palace that is also the seat of government, but it's also uh, a symbol of uh, British, but also Mediterranean, you know, because it is kind of neoclassic, but it's, you know, it's built like, you know, you think you're in Valletta if you walk around the, the palace. It's the only thing that we can export in Malta. It's dust and people. We have nothing else. So, so, so you know, we tried our luck with exporting stone. Um, uh, thanks, thanks to uh, Sir Thomas Maitland. It, it, it was a limited um, operation, which only was successful in Corfu. But his throne is made out of multi stone. The the uh, uh, although there is no that's true uh, and it's quite a, a funny comment but uh, it did lead to the creation of a maltese uh, community in corfu uh, which is very interesting and it's another sign of what i uh, used to call uh, a sort of british intra-imperial mediterranean network you know the fact that you have mobility within these regions of early british colonial rule in the mediterranean 
uh, similar to the ones you have later on, let's say from in the Indian Ocean or uh, elsewhere, when you know people move into the sort of within the same empire, but then of course they occupy a different place in the social category in the society which they uh, in which they uh, settle. Now, for the navy question, I think it's important because this is before the time of the steamship. And, um, uh, you know, the sailing ship is uh, the, the only form of uh, uh, military technology uh, at sea uh, at the time. And um, I think the Napoleonic Wars uh, gave this uh, impetus to, to have uh, a strong, to not get, uh, not to lose uh, a strong uh, military um, uh, base such as uh, Corfu. Uh, the British don't really need to have uh, troops stationed anywhere else. In fact, when the time when the need uh, arose, there are rebellions in 1819 in the island of of Lefkada, that is further south, and in 1821 during the first months of the Greek Revolution in the island of Zakynthos and Kithira. If the need, if they they have to, they just uh, put uh, troops on the ship and send them directly, you know, to on a boat with the cannons and. Every all the equipment, so they can move pretty quickly, uh, and that's the other thing that they establish, you know, in the island. So it's important for the navy, but also for advancing this sort of, you know, military technology communication uh, nexus. Uh, it's important that, and I'm going to talk. This is the last time I'm going to talk about the Greek Revolution, but all communication uh, that goes through. Uh, the Greeks uh, to Britain or to France or to anybody else goes through the Ionian Islands. And the British actually read pretty much everything because that's how most letters travel. So it's, that's how important it is, not just for military and you know, uh, navy, let's say, but for uh, transportation at sea and, 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 and intelligence and communication at sea. You know, that's, that's how important it is. Now, the islands have, of course, as you mentioned before, an important tradition when it comes to sailors. You know, some of them were pirates. Very quickly, they get into trade with the Black Sea. Uh, not yet, but increasingly so. Uh, when the Black Sea uh, regions of uh, Crimea and South Russia in general, they become the... Um, uh, the grain uh, basket of uh, of Europe, pretty much. Uh, so the Ionian Islands, um, sea farers, let's say, crews, uh, merchant captains, and traders, large uh, wholesale traders, are at the at the forefront of this. Uh, so the Ionian Islands form this connection that later on will become what Jelena Harlaftis has called the Ionian phase of Greek-owned shipping. That's how important uh, it was. Uh, so they have different. Um, levels of uh, engagement with various aspects of modern European history, beginning in the Napoleonic Wars. I have no doubt that this is where things accelerate. You know, there's an old article by, by, by I don't remember the author, uh, The Beginnings of Modernization in the Middle East. Um, I think it's the beginnings of modernization with all the you know, caveats that this includes in, in Greek history as well. If if I may uh, intervene and say this sounds like the Napoleonic Wars are the genesis of, of Greek independence, uh, I would I wouldn't uh, uh, strike a direct connection uh, because what is the meaning of independence? You know, is the Republic is the Septinsula Republic uh, independent enough for some people? It is. You know, it is all they want. Is uh, the British protectorate uh, independent enough? 
Kapodistrias liked it. You know, he's a Russian uh, friendly, let's say, a conservative guy who thinks the British are going to bring this liberal spirit of government to his people. And he's right. That's what they pledged. So he likes that this is a protectorate. You know, it's the only state that Greeks had until 1820s. And that came under after a painful revolution only in 1830. So uh, so what is the what is the meaning of independence is relative and always conditioned on the, you know, on the uh, changing on the conditions of the time. In these kind of situations, I would call self-determination. Exactly. It makes uh, a, a much more, it sounds nicer to, to the air. Um, Sakis, it was an honor to, to, to ask these questions and, and listen to your opinion on, on, on what was happening in the Levant uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. And I'm sure the listeners would have enjoyed every second of this. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, very good. Thank you to Liam and to uh, Sakis there for, uh, for for taking part there in, in the podcast, for joining in. That was really good. And um, that you can hear a little bit more about the idea of Greece, which is a, a sort of mini-series within the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's podcast. Um, in the sh- take, take a look in the show notes. You can listen to, to, to the episodes that they've got there. Well, thanks for this. Coming up next, we'll be um, diving deep into Hochstadt and the campaign which preceded that decisive battle that led to that extraordinary breakthrough uh, in southern Germany uh, for the French. Um, That's coming up next, and then Marengo will be following that. So do um, brace yourselves for some proper military machinations. That'll be good. Um, then, uh, after that episode thirty-five, we'll be we'll be moving along again. Uh, but in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, it's NapoleonicQuarterly at gmail.com. And if the mood takes you, a review on Apple Podcasts, or to be honest, a five-star thing anywhere would be great. Spotify, for example, other places, it would all be good. Um, thank you very much in advance. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye for now.